are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Akin Thomas, founder and CEO of AKD Solutions, an international learning and development consultancy focusing on organizational change. Good afternoon, Akin. Thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. Yeah, hi. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Okay, let's get started with a quick introduction to who you are and what you do. Okay, so my name is Akin Thomas. I am the founder and CEO of AKD Solutions. We are an organizational change consultancy, so we focus on three areas of business, which is research, learning and development, which is our core, and consultancy services. We have evolved over the years and have gone from a local brand to an international brand, and the plan is to become a global brand. That's amazing. So have you always been entrepreneurial, and what made you get on that journey? Okay, I think the answer is it was there. I used to work for local government, so I started off working in children's homes, and I kind of progressed through the organization, became a senior manager. But I just had this burn. I had this urge. And I just knew that being within the organization couldn't satisfy it. I felt quite restricted. And also, I was doing things on the side. Whilst I was working as a senior manager, I always had different projects on the side. And one day, I just jumped. One day, I just had an epiphany. And I just said, I said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Went to my director. And I said, I'm done. I'm leaving. And he said, you can't. And I said, watch me. 30 days later, I was sitting in my house with no job, no nothing. But it was probably the best decision I've ever made. Well, one of the best decisions I've ever made. Wow, that's amazing. And I guess when you have to take the leap, you really have to believe in what you're doing. There's no hedging or no thinking, oh, can I do this and can I do that? Absolutely. I went on your website and did some research. And um, I saw that at AKD, you have a credo. Uh, What is the inspiration or the belief behind that credo? And how does it translate in every day? Because it's standard to see mission, vision, etc. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, for me, what was really important is that I was doing a lot of work with organizations around leadership, and we were doing lots of work in regards to mission, vision, statements, etc., values. And for me, there was a lot of work that we were doing with organizations and it just didn't feel as genuine as it should do. It didn't translate into the day-to-day. Yeah. And for me, one of the things I was thinking about, there's got to be a compelling vision. There's got to be a vision that excites everybody in the organization. And so I was searching and searching, doing lots of work, studying different companies. And I discovered the credo written by Johnson & Johnson and written by the founder in 1943. And to be honest, they have amended it by taking out a few words. It has stood the test of time. So this credo, I mean, Johnson & Johnson is well over 100 years old. I think they wrote it in 1943 when it became a public listed company. And what I saw was this amazing statement of intent. 
what I loved about it, firstly, it talked about its customers, it talked about its staff, it talked about stakeholders, and then it talked about its shareholders last. Because it said, if we do all these things well, yeah. our shareholders will get a good return. And it just inspired me. And what I wanted was a statement of intent that really captured who we were and was authentic and it, it was timeless that was what's really important to me too many organizations were changing and chopping and changing and for me if you think about leadership leadership should be a long-term thing there should be a long-term vision and often what we're finding ourselves in now is leadership is being really condensed into very short bursts and so therefore you're never really getting the best and that's the same with some of our visions and missions because you talk to organizations that values have changed after three four years it's like why aren't they rooted in terms of who you are? And yeah. so for me, that's what it was about. So it's about really kind of capturing the essence of who we are. So when we talk about we believe in the brilliance of every individual and every person, it means that what does that then translate to? When we talk about we believe in the power of conversation, I say to people, we will never become an e-learning company because I just don't, I don't disrespect it, but it's just not who we are. What we see is that we see transformation in classrooms when people are having conversations. So yeah. our job is to stimulate brilliant conversations. And the fact, one of the things I've said is that it's going to be fun. We work too hard not to enjoy life. I said to the team, the day it becomes boring and we stop laughing, I'll shut the company down. And so I really want these things to translate on a day-to-day -day basis, not only internally, but it infects our, our clients as well. So that's why we created it. That's so amazing, uh, especially you're talking about the day stops being fun because we don't realize that we spend most of our lives in our workplaces. And yeah, it shouldn't be that hard or that difficult. And the other thing that you mentioned that really resonates is now we are talking about stakeholder capitalism and we are talking about stakeholders being the primary people who we need to take into consideration. So yeah. this existed a long time back and we are just coming back to it. But it's also about having a long-term vision rather than being tactical because that doesn't sit right, changing who you are every other day. I, yeah, because I think there's a couple of things. The issue about being authentic, but secondly, I think is about if you truly want, you know, good things take time. It's like food, yeah? Okay. Yeah. You can have a microwave meal or you can have a well-prepared meal, which yeah. has taken time. It's been done with love, with care, with passion, yeah? They are markedly different. And I think the trouble, what we're expecting from a lot of our leaderships and organizations is kind of popcorn, quick meal, you know, fast yeah. meal, fast food type mindset, as opposed to actually, if we take time and do this really, really well, the longevity that we will experience will be phenomenal. But people are too scared to make those decisions. Yes. They don't want to stick to one thing or don't want to commit to sticking to one thing. Absolutely. Uh, now, so moving on in a LinkedIn post from last year, you've spoken about the importance of context. I read all your posts and they were so interesting. Is this to do with your identity? And how important is your identity to you? It is hugely important. And I think it's one of the things, the more that I have grown in age, the more I recognize the importance of context and really embracing yourself. I think one of the challenges we have in society is that most people are not comfortable with themselves. They're busy trying to emulate, copy other people. And if you don't have context, it's very easy to be pulled in so many different directions. So as a child, I grew up in a place called Lee Park, which was the largest council estate in Europe. I was one of very few black kids 
I was the only black kid that went to school from five to 16. I didn't see anybody else other than myself. And I was void of context because I was fostered from six weeks old. And therefore, I am this black child in the middle of this extremely white. I knew I was different. I felt different. I didn't get a sense of belonging, but I didn't know what the context was because I just knew I was not within the right context. And that these massive voids. And when you have no context, the voice that, that gives people is incredible. So the fact that you can't speak your mother tongue or that you don't know language or you don't know who you are, you don't know friends, family, yeah? It just leaves voids. And what then people do, in my opinion, is that they have to fill those voids, often with stuff which is superficial, not true, etc. And therefore what you have is a lot of people walking around who are shadows of who they should be. So for me, when I went to Nigeria, the thing about being Nigerian is like, it's in your blood, but you don't understand until you kind of yeah. find yourself in a contest. like, oh, I get it. Yeah. You understand? So my drive, my thought process, the entrepreneurism, et cetera, yeah? It was, when you put it in context, it's like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. And then what it does, it gives you a sense of peace, yeah. a greater understanding. And I think the minute you can become comfortable with yourself because you've got context, changes because suddenly you can't be the victim of others yeah and that's not the best way to lead a happy or a productive life absolutely absolutely how many people really have context especially in the uk right now you know we're very diverse so i I see so many people uh, i talk to them and they say yeah my mum and dad didn't speak their mother tongue to them why yeah yeah. Okay. Why? All of these things are so, so important. Yeah. I mean, we change our names so it's more palatable to yeah. other people. It's not right. We change our name. We change the way we dress, the way we behave, the way we talk or laugh. Yes. I think in public, you don't want to be too Absolutely. loud. You don't want to get the focus of attention on yourself. Yeah. That's so interesting. Again, what does leadership mean to you? Because you said you have done a lot of work around leadership. What does leadership mean to me? I think for me, leadership is the energy and the force for change. And I think that's really, really important. It is the energy and the force for change. It is incredible the impact that one individual can have over 10, 20, 100, 2 million. It is incredible that one person and their leadership can literally change history, change the focus of a nation change a community. And if you think about that level of power and influence, you have to recognize that I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, it is a huge privilege to have leadership ascribed to you, but it's also a massive area of responsibility. When you're leading an organization, like for me, okay, my organization, we have about 40 individuals, both kind of full-time and associates. But that bears a weight in terms of I'm responsible for these people. But also, I think the excitement in terms of for me, great leadership is like, do you know when you take people on a journey where we've, we've never been here before, we've never navigated these waters before, we're creating something new, we're creating something innovative, we're creating something that creates change. It is an incredible force for good, but also if handled badly for evil as well. And so for me, The more I look at society, the more I look at kind of individuals, governments, sporting organizations, families, the importance of leadership, it it is right through society. And I think 
when we understand and respect leadership and utilize it properly, profound change is possible. Yeah, there seems to be a vacuum in leadership across actually business and politics. I don't think we should even discuss politics. I think one of the things I would say to you is this, yeah, is that I think one of the things I believe is that we have a lot of good managers in leadership positions. And we do recognize leadership and management, we're not saying one is better than the other or more important, but what we are saying is that actually the quality of leadership that we are experiencing is actually really quite concerning. I agree with you. In the course of like doing the background research, I read another article where you spoke about organizational consciousness. Mm. What is organizational consciousness and why is it important? So the organization is like a living being. I, I wrote the article in regards to how do we learn as organizations? And the, the premise was this, the, the, the initial premise was this, is if we have no idea what society is going to look like in the next 5, 10, 15 years, how do we create learning platforms which are fit for purpose that will help us to create the right type of future? And one of the things I've seen in terms of the evolution of, of organizations is one thing is uh, where we go from what we call ego to eco. So we go from the selfless, the selfish to the kind of yeah. more selfless. And one of the things you look at in organizations is this, yeah? So if you think about an organizational need being their prime reason for existence. So if we look at an organization, let's say, for example, IKEA. IKEA's prime business is to sell furniture in a particular mode, yeah? But that's their prime drive. So it's a profit-making organization, yeah? Now, if you were to roll back, say, 20, 30 years, all the learning would be geared towards that function only. So if it didn't impact upon the bottom line in terms of upskilling people to be better at their jobs, organizations wouldn't have done it. There has been a shift now in terms of how society functions and businesses function. So organizational consciousness is basically where an organization's intention and impact goes beyond their organizational needs. Oh. Okay. So there are three elements that are required. So I've already spoken about organizational need. So therefore, what is our core purpose? But then you've got two other elements. You then start to bring in individual needs. So suddenly in an organization, will start to be more conscious, aware, and to address individual needs. So let's look at well-being. Again, 20, 30 years, it wasn't on the table. You were expendable. You didn't have the luxury of mental health challenges. You, it was just not on the table. Now, we're much more conscious about well-being. You can see there's a mutual benefit, but we're now starting to think about individual needs. Yeah. When you're looking at um, development now, we're not developing you for where you are today. We're developing you for where you want to be in two, three years' time. True. So there's an organizational need. But the third element, which is the really important element, is what we call the societal needs. Now, societal needs are quite complex. It's because a societal need is basically where there is a fundamental disconnect between what is right and what is going on within, in the world. And an organization says, we need to engage with this societal need. Let's look at domestic violence. It is a fundamental curse on our society. Again, 20, 30 years ago, would never be part of the narrative of any organization. But now there are organizations that are actively saying, we stand up against, we actively work towards trying to address this issue. Now, what's interesting about organizational consciousness is that what sparks it? Is it the organization or yeah. is it society? So if you think about child labor, was that 
stopped in the boardrooms. No, it was stopped by customers because customers said, we demand more of you. Okay. So the boardroom had to respond to the customers. So you can see this changing relationship between organizations and stakeholders where now that consciousness is much more beyond. So it is not unusual for to see organizations being really passionate about things and going beyond just kind of, you know, the normal kind of CSR, but actually being, this is deep rooted in terms of who we are as an organization. And I think that's what makes society fairer and much more interesting as well, in terms of being a business. You see some organizations from the outset, they're saying, and this is what we're passionate about, and this is what we're going to have the Yeah, so I get a good understanding of what organizational consciousness is very much linked not just to the bottom line, but also to doing good and possibly looking at some of the biggest societal conflicts and where they can contribute. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. How optimistic are you akin to, you know, the progress that is being made on equity and inclusion for the global majority in the UK? Do you believe we've made some strides since 2020? I mean, This issue is not new, but 2020 sort of was quite a big year in terms of, you know, the pressure on organizations to respond and to take action. Have we seen change? The answer is yes, we have seen change. And this is from my personal working with clients. The first thing I I try to do is have a, it's almost a detector. Are you genuine? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is a tick box. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is this really genuine? Yeah. And this is one of the things I think I've saw since 2020. I think what we saw was this up until 2020, I think diversity and inclusion for many was kicked into the long grass. It's too soon. Wait. You know what I mean? Like let it evolve, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. 2020 just kind of disrupted that. Secondly, the conversations I'm having with senior leaders in organizations are much more authentic, much more genuine in terms of they want to make change. Now, some of them are commercially driven. I don't have a problem with that because the reality is this change is going to have a number of different triggers. Some will be moral, some will be financial, some will be lawful. So I do believe we have made change. I do believe that there is much more interest and there's much more genuine desire to try to make change. However, I do think that in the change process, there's a lot of fear. One of the things I've come to the conclusion of is this, even though it doesn't make any sense, there's a lot of people who don't want equality. And, you know, when you see different examples, so when you saw, you know, like the Spanish football team and you saw this one man who was able to hijack the agenda. But what was interesting is the narrative. They tried to downplay, they tried to belittle, they tried to say it's too much, too soon, all of this stuff. So I recognize that there are so many people who don't want equality. They can't articulate that, but they don't want it. The good thing for me is that we're not finding that as much within senior leadership positions, but the problem is, is when it coming down the organization, yeah. often there's that middle management group here where fundamentally they are the ones that are going to create the change. They are the ones that are going to actually make it happen or not. They are the ones that are going to sit on policies, sit yeah. on decisions, etc. And I think the biggest thing is that I would say to you, the intention of a lot of senior leaders is correct, but I don't think that they have really got the accountability correct. And what I mean by that is this, yeah, I see too many people who are able to wriggle out of doing the right thing. 
Let me give you an example. If I was to say to you in the next six months, you must improve health and safety in your area. And you come back to me on a review in, say, four months time and you say, well, only three people died on my watch and only 15 people got injured. I'll do better next time. There will be consequences. With EDNI at the moment, there's very few consequences for people who say, I'll do better next time. I tried. It's hard. It's difficult. So even though there's that intention, I think there is that kind of that mid area in organizations where people have not been made accountable and therefore they get away with doing little. And that's where the problem is, because there's a groundswell where you're seeing the staff being really quite passionate. You're seeing it at leadership, but that middle area. That's where there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, that's the bottleneck and also the active resistors. I want to ask you about, you know, the Tell Your Story project that was commissioned by UK Sport, Sport England, Mm -hmm. Sport Wales, Sport Northern and Sports Scotland to research race and racism in sports. We've heard a lot and read a lot about racism in cricket over the past couple of years. So what was this about? So again, this was, I think, again, this was sparked by George Floyd. So a lot of what you were talking about was sparked by George Floyd. That moment in time where, as I said, people saw a man being lynched. Yeah. And the world had to stop. The world stopped and witnessed it. And so what happened is that we were approached by, no, we weren't approached. We were laddie, one of my team, the head of sport, basically said, I can, there's this piece of research and we can win it. And I said to him, laddie, there's only one problem. We've never done any research in our lives. Yeah. But he was just adamant we could win this. And so we submitted our proposal and we won. And one of the reasons we won is because we didn't know the rules. So we did what we thought was right. We just came up with our way. This is our approach. And I have to say, it was one of the proudest pieces of work we've ever done. It was capturing the stories of 325 individuals from professional athletes right through to mums and dads taking their children to sport. Uh, We covered 38 different sports and we basically listened to the stories of women in hijabs who couldn't go swimming. We spoke to a group of women who played netball and they were 50 years old at the time I interviewed them and they were tearful about an incident that happened to them 30 years previous where they were robbed of a game because they were aggressive. I mean, they they kept on being discriminated in the kind of officiating, yeah? And they cried because of what happened 30 years ago. And that's how deep these things run. And so we captured these stories. And basically, it was very, very moving for the team. Because you can imagine with speaking to 325 people who have some stories of, I mean, we had people who are suicidal. We had people who had their, their marriages had broken down. We had people who are estranged from their children because of sport. And for me, it was really interesting that sport, the thing that should give you life, vibrancy, energy, was destroying a lot of people. I think there was a number of things that came about. And I think one of the things when I kind of, there was some key headlines. And I think one of them I said is this, yeah, People do not realize the impact of racism. I think for a lot of people, it is an intellectual concept, okay? They do not realize the damage, the pain, and the fact that it's actually killing people. And one of the other things that we found, which I found really profound, was this. When forefathers came in the 1950s and, yeah, 
after the Second World War. They came to this country. They came from Asia. They came from Africa. They came from the Caribbean. And they wanted to participate in sport and they were excluded. So do you remember yeah. when our forefathers came, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Well, that's yeah. what we were greeted yeah. with, yeah? And so you can appreciate when they wanted to join in and play cricket, they were excluded. So they created their own systems. Yeah. And we call them alternative structures. Here's the most profound thing we found, yeah? That in 2020. One, there were more alternative structures in 2021 than there were in the 1950s. Oh, my God. Now, that says something really profound in terms of where people are having to create systems and structures so that they can participate and feel safe participating. In 2021, I'll give you an example. There's an amazing uh, run crew called the Emancipated Run Crew. And five of their members one day turned up to a park run. So it's a park run on a Sunday, 5K run. They're in their running outfits. And the organizer asked them, is there a protest? And so when you get that type of reaction, why would you want to step into that space where you don't feel safe, you don't feel wanted, you don't feel seen? You create your own structures. And so for me, it was, it was a brilliant piece of research. It has been extremely well received and it is having some really profound impact in terms of changes in sport. So we're deeply proud of it. I would have to say, uh, if you want an example of an organization that has embraced its sport wells, they've just said, you mean, stretch us, challenge us, because we want to get this right. So we're very proud of the work and we're very proud of the fact that organizations have embraced this and are actually taking it forward as well. Yeah, the stories are so emotional and it's so heartbreaking that, like you said, there are more alternate structures now than when our forefathers came. And that should tell, you know, people in government and people who look like us and who talk about racism not existing anymore in this country, institutionalized racism. So that's like really, really good, but also tragic. What would your advice be, Akin, for organizations seeking to be more authentic about the DEIB initiatives, so diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, or access initiatives? You've spoken about authenticity earlier, and how critical is measurement for meaningful change? Because you did say that this conversation around racism, etc., is like very intellectual. People don't realize the impact it has on the person who is receiving at the receiving end and how it can be, you know, blight their lives forever. Um, Absolutely. I think for me, I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, one of the pieces of advice I would give to any organization is stop looking at what others are doing. Yeah. Yeah? Stop looking at what others are doing and look within and get a real sense of what does it mean to us as an organization have a stretch, be stretched by others, but stop trying to copy other people. Because one of the things I struggle with is the term best practice, because we should be looking for our original practice. So one of the things when I was working with London Marathon, uh, one of my favorite clients, and the reason why is this, is that there was an energy and a determination, but the how was missing. And I said to them, is this, what's your je ne sais quoi? Yeah. yeah. What is the thing that makes you brilliant? They are one of the best mass participation event organizers in the world. There's something incredible about them as an organization. There's an energy about them. And I said, apply the same to diversity and inclusion and you will blow up. And that's yeah. what they did. So therefore, now there's an incredible shift in terms of the diversity and inclusion, in terms of their staffing, in terms of those who are participating they're on this journey. I also did the same with Yorkshire Housing. And like, I said to them, what makes you great? 
And again, it's one of those questions where they're looking at you think, what, what do you mean what? Yeah. But you know what made them great? Being Yorkshire. I said, apply it to your DNI strategy. And so it's really about making sure that you understand. Now, the second part is measure. I'll be honest with you, when I first started on this journey, I was not a data advocate in any way, shape or form. It's because of the way I'm, I'm wired. However, data is crucial. Data is really, really crucial because one of the things we have to recognize is that there's lots of activity, but where's the change? And if you don't have data, then there's no accountability. If there's no data, there's not going to be the change. So there'll be all these activities and there'll be this kind of, oh, we think we're doing, yeah, there's got yeah. to be good data. And so the more I have been involved in this area of work, the more I see the need for really good data, really honest data, okay? Because if you want real change, you're going to need the data. We've got a model called ACE, and, you know, if anybody wants to kind of check it out on our website, but ACE is a model, and it talks about truth, conflict, and trust. The truth element is what does the data tell us? What is the data telling us in terms of the number of people recruiting, retention, disciplinary, sickness, you understand, uh, pro progression? The data doesn't lie. So you've got to get that data. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, there's been so much of conversation. There is so much of what do you say in the media that you see people talking about it. But when you actually go to measure progress or when you actually see the statistics and data, as you said, you see that there is not actually real progress. So there's fatigue because people are talking, but not really yes. taking action. Now they have this excuse around the cost of living crisis and, you know, the recession or the economic slowdown. And so the first thing that goes is going to be the DI. Absolutely. I mean, but like the cost of discrimination has been there way before and it's going to be there way after. Yeah. And yet nobody feels that it is worth investing in the cost of discrimination, the cost of belittling people, the cost of crushing people's lives, yeah? The cost of living is absolutely real, yeah? But there's a much bigger cost that a lot of people are paying right now, and it's not going away anytime soon, unless there's a real intentional effort to actually make things change. Yes. And so, you know, you do all of this work is like you're very passionate about it, clearly, but it is also difficult work. It isn't always the easiest, you know, just the stories that you hear about. I started getting emotional about it. So who are the people who inspire you to do what you do every single day? You know, your role models. Mm, I think. My role models are, yeah, I have so many role models. I think for me, my family, first of all, watching my children grow and become entrepreneurs of their own. The fact that they still have battles, but they have different battles to me. It inspires me. And my team really inspire me because the reason they inspire me is because they've chosen to come on this journey with me. Yeah. They've chosen to contribute to the vision. And I find that very humbling, the fact that actually you would come and want to be part of this journey. And there's so many other people. So for example, you know, sport, I love sport. And my goddaughter, she just won a medal at the World Championships on Sunday. Yeah. What? Yeah, absolutely. But the journey to get there, yeah. that's what inspired me. Because you only see the medal. You don't see the story behind the medal. Oh my God. You don't, yeah. see, you don't see the injuries and the fact that she was ready to give up at one point, etc. You understand? That inspires me. And do you know what? I, on a day-to-day -day basis, do you know when you just see people just doing the best that they can? 
with what they've got. There, there's this guy, and I, I don't know why, but he won't leave me. And he was a, he swept the streets. But you know what was so special about him? He did it with a real sense of pride. And like, because, you know, you, you can see some people that they're just yeah. doing it for the job. This man did it with such pride. And I remember watching him, and this was maybe 10, 15 years ago, but I never forget the fact that he woke up with an intention to do a great job for us. How many people would actually acknowledge that person's work? Nobody. You know? yeah. Absolutely. So for me, it's about the invisible heroes, those people who don't necessarily on a day-to-day basis, but they wake up with the intention just to do their very best. To me, that's inspiring. Wow, awesome. And we're the last one. Complete the sentence, I believe in. I have to say, mine's very simple. I believe in God. <laughs> that's me. Yeah. He defines me. He shapes everything I do. I believe in the brilliance of people. I believe that we've been given an opportunity to do great things. And I believe that we should kind of seize the moment. Amazing. What a brilliant way to end this conversation. Thank you, Akin, for making time to be a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast. It's been really awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time as well. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs, and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.